Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biff Bites, the Boston Institute of Finance's official podcast on the CFP designation and general financial planning. I'm your host, Jerry, and I'm joined today by my co-host here, Mike. Mike, how you doing? Jerry, hi. Good morning. Uh, doing well today, and um want to thank you for putting these together and for asking me to be on uh, the first episode with you. So uh, this is exciting. Definitely. Yeah. Really glad for you to be here. Uh, I couldn't think of a better person to have on for the first episode. Uh, but, but since this is the first episode, let's kind of break down for our listeners, you know, what our goal is here. You know, what are we, uh, you know, hoping to do and hoping to help them out with their, you know, financial planning process. And also for anyone who's studying for the CFP exam, you know, what they can expect to get out of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I see that as so highly um, interrelated. I mean, we're going to talk a lot about things to expect on on the CFP exam and uh, try to give some insight and clarity on uh, interesting topics that sometimes challenge us. And um, but that all applies into private practice as well, Jerry. So I think that that's twofold, really. Uh, by listening in and engaging us in these conversations. Definitely, definitely. I mean, we get we hear so much from our students, uh, so many interesting topics and situations and questions that, you know, we just figured it would be nice to kind of share it in a much broader sense, in a more accessible way that, you know, other people can learn from the experiences. Uh, so we got we got a lot to talk about today, uh, but I kind of wanted to dive in real quick, Mike, with, uh, with an example of a question that... Um, you might see on the CFP exam, but it's also a question that's going to be relevant to any financial planner out there uh, because the the topic of the question is just so key to uh, retirement planning this day and age, and uh, that's with Roth IRAs. Absolutely. You, you picked a good one for the first topic out of the bag. Uh, it absolutely is, is very important for the exam. And in uh, in personal practice, we just have so many clients that have gone the Roth way, and uh, so this is this is a good way to start it, Jerry. Definitely. So yeah, let's get the juices flowing. Uh, I'm going to pitch this one to you, Mike, and I'll, and let's see how you do. So Mike, age 50, established a Roth IRA on April 1st of 2019 with a $5,000 regular contribution for tax year 2018. What is the first possible year Mike will be able to make a qualified distribution from the account? Is it A, 2029, B, 2023, C, 2024, or D, 2019? Okay, great question. <laughs> and this is, uh, this is really huge for the, the national exam. I am going to go with Jerry um, 2023. Huh. Well, hold on a second there, Mike, because what happened to the magic 59 and a half? I mean, that's been drilled into us uh, for years that, you know, you can start taking distributions from IRAs at 59 and a half in 2023. Mike here, he's only going to be, what, 54 years old. That's that's not old enough. Certainly not 59 and a half. And 59 and a half is is still very important age for a Roth IRA, but it's not the only possibility for a qualified distribution. Huh, okay. So the, what you're saying is there's uh there's a bit of a trick here. There's kind of uh some loopholes going on. What's what what uh what would allow you to take out from a Roth IRA before uh 59 and a half? 
Yeah, okay. Yeah, there's a whole lot going on in this question, Jerry, and that's what makes it such a great exam question. Um, so we, we the first absolute requirement in a qualified distribution is for the account to have been held for a minimum of five years. That is an absolute requirement. Okay, so by 2023, well, now that is only going to be four years, but hold up, is it because it's a tax year 2018 contribution so even though it hasn't been five calendar years it's five years as far as the irs is concerned yep that's it absolutely it the the then that's why you have to read these so carefully the contribution was made in april of 2019 but it was designated for 2018 so our clock starts january 1st of 2018 mm, and i notice option c is 2024 so even if you knew the first trick that, uh, you know, it has to be a five year holding period and you're like, OK, five years, that's all I have to wait. They, you could still get tripped up on the second trick of it being a 2018 tax year contribution and just go strictly off the calendar year and still accidentally get the question wrong, even though, you know, the root answer. <laughs> that's right. Absolutely. So if you just do it on your fingers, if we've got a clock that's starting uh, January 1st of eighteen. Uh, 18 to 19 to 20 to 2021 to 2022 January 1st 2023 is the five-year holding period Hmm, tricky tricky okay so five years has passed uh, as far as the IRS is concerned so that's why 2023 is the option but uh, are there any other kind of requirements we're looking at here that would allow you to take it uh, take it out sooner uh, yeah, and that this is where the 59 and a half comes in. We were conditioned to think of 59 and a half because of traditional IRAs can't take money out prior to 59 and a half without it perhaps being penalized. So it's still one of the options here, but it's not the only option. Mm, okay. So what are, what are the other options? Okay. So in addition to the five years, uh, there have to be qualifying circumstances that would be met either by the death of the account holder, disability, attributable to the money uh, coming out for a first-time home purchase or attainment of age 59 and a half. Gotcha. Okay, so five-year holding period or any of the following uh, uh, conditions that you just listed off, either one of those, whichever comes first. That's right, and I, I that's why I put age 59 and a half last uh, just because we're we're just thinking that's the only option, mm-hmm. and in my explanation, I didn't mean that disability attributable to the home first time home purchase. Yes, <laughs> uh, I hope that wouldn't be the case. I mean, buying a first home is uh, kind of difficult, but hopefully, it doesn't lead to disability. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's four things: death, disability, first time home purchase, or, or fifty nine and a half. Um, so the fact of the matter is that death, disability, or home purchase can happen at any age. So as long as that five-year holding period is 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 in place uh, for death, disability, or first-time home purchase, they don't need to be 59 and a half. Gotcha. So five-year holding period is the really only absolute, and any of the others can happen at any at any age. Exactly. And and in all the years that I've been involved with this, with thousands of students, that's the number one misconception that I see about Roth IRAs. 
is the 59 and a half. True. And what's especially tricky about this question, if we haven't already pointed out just how tricky it is on its own, uh, a slight verbiage change with this question, I feel can just completely change the meaning and outcome of this question. And with that, I mean, at the end, what is the first possible year to make a qualified distribution from the account? You know, what if we just remove that qualified and just say distribution from the account? Uh, well, distribution, but more importantly, tax-free distribution. True. So what's the first year a tax-free distribution could come from the account? Okay. And, and you know, in hindsight, the qualified distribution, the reason that's so good is because it is tax-free, not only on return of contributions, but on earnings as well. But with uh, Roth IRAs, I thought, you know, one of the big benefits of them is that you can always take the uh, principal out tax-free. Yes. And that's why... By just swapping out that one word, taking out qualified and inserting tax-free distribution, the game changes because now it's all about uh, how much is being taken out and how far in the attribution order the the distribution reaches. True, true. So what what does this turn the answer to? Uh, well, this turns the answer to 2019. Gotcha. So the actual year that the that Mike started the IRA is also the year that he can uh, take his first tax-free distribution. Right, because the first layer of distribution is considered to be just return of contributions, return of principal, not going to be taxed, not going to be penalized. Right. So, you know, any money that Mike puts into that IRA, Mike can then take out of that IRA. As long as he doesn't dip into the earnings, he's not going to have a tax bill. That's right. The first layer is um, is contributions. The next layer is conversions. And then lastly are the earnings. And it's not until we get into the earnings that we would have uh, a, a taxable distribution. True, true. And uh, by conversions there, you mean conversions from uh, traditional IRAs? Yes, indeed. Tr- uh, conversions from traditional IRAs. Now there is a there is a, a twist there that if it if it's attributed to a conversion within five years. It wouldn't be subject to regular income tax, but it could be penalized. Ah, you know, because the IRS, they, they love making our lives simple. So they got to add on that's, some more le- levels. <laughs> that's right. And, and the conversions are, are looked at on a first in, first out basis. So the earliest con- the earliest conversion would be considered the first piece coming out from that category. Definitely. I think that'll that'll definitely be a topic we'll t- tackle uh, in a later episode because there's some interesting stuff there, but definitely gets in the weed. Oh, really fast with just two sentences. And, and then the example you just gave is excellent by swapping out the one word qualified to, to simply tax free. You could also see that question right uh, on the exam. <laughs> both of them. You may get both of them. Right. Exactly. Exactly. All right, Mike. So another thing I wanted to talk to you about today is something that my students bring up all the time. I get it asked constantly every single exam cycle from pretty much every student. And that's how to put together a successful study plan for this massive exam. Oh, yeah. And I mean, Jerry, that's one of those things that that sounds so simple, (laughs) but can end up being really difficult to uh, manage on a day to day basis. 
Yeah, so true, so true. I mean, it it's completely natural because, I mean, this is an important test and people want to do well and they want to put the work in, but a lot of times they just don't know how to put the work in or they're afraid that the work that they're putting in is just not an efficient use of their time. Uh, so I, I think it's natural for people to kind of reach out for a study plan. Um, I, I agree completely. And otherwise, we just don't stay on track. We, we just if we don't make a study plan, we don't stay on track. And we tend to bounce around day to day, never really making much progress through all of the material we need to work with. Definitely. And that's why I always tell my students that consistency is key. You know, even if you only have five, 10 minutes on a particular day, study for those five, 10 minutes, study every single day, even if it's just for a couple minutes, uh, study every day and try and study at the same time every day, because that way you form a habit and your body just gets used to, okay, it's four o'clock. It's time to crack those books and start studying. And eventually you won't even have to think about it anymore. You'll just find yourself reaching for your books at three fifty-five every day. Yes, I, I really believe in that. I'm a real extremist in, as far as that organization, uh, and I promote and advocate and used personally a uh, study plan that I, I put it on my calendar like it was an appointment with an important client, and I also put what I was going to do in that time block, whether it was 15 minutes or three hours, just to be able to stay on track and, and frankly catch myself doing what I said I was going to do. Yeah, that's a great point. And I really like the phrasing that you used, used there, Mike, where you said you put it on your calendar as if it's an, appoint, an appointment with your most important client. Because what happens if uh, your most important uh, client has to cancel the appointment? Do you just not talk to that client until the same time <laughs> next year? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean that, that that that's that's why you have to reschedule it. You you would want to reschedule it in that moment if you got the call and said, "Hey, I can't make it today." Uh, okay, well, let's set another time, <laughs> and you find a block, the next opportunity block for that time segment, and put it right back in the moment you cancel it. Exactly, exactly. That way, you're staying honest with yourself, uh, and you're making sure that you're doing the work that you have to. Yeah. And, and I've said over all these years um, that passing this exam as much is as much of a time challenge as it really is about uh, academics. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I would say the key takeaways there are, you know, make it consistent, you know, put it in your schedule and just, you know, be honest with yourself. Uh, make sure you're doing the work and make sure, uh, that you're, you know, consistently going in there and sitting down and, uh, you know, really cracking those books and putting the work in. Yeah. And, and, and by making that plan, Jerry, you, you follow and use all of the materials in the manner in which they're designed to help most uh, powerfully and in the sequence that they're designed to be used. And that takes a lot of discipline because the easiest thing to do would just to be sit and answer questions, answer questions all day. That's not enough. You've got to do the reading. You've got to do the other exercises. You've got to go to class for, for live review. You've got to do all these things and they'll work together. 
Right, right, exactly. I mean, I think you've shown me your your calendar study plan where, you know, not only are you booking it out for specific times, you're you're bullet point listing exactly what you intend to cover in those time frames. And what I love about that is the checklist of it, because I don't know about you, but I just really like it when I make a a checklist of things that I have to do. And every time I check one of those items off, you just kind of get a little endorphin rush. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's very, very true. Even more than a honeydew list. Um, (laughs) You know, this this gives you that same. I did it. I did it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, when you do that, when you check it off and you feel good about the accomplishment of getting something done, you know. Now that just encourages you to that much more to get the next thing checked off. Uh, yeah, it's very energizing. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of it is just kind of little tricks uh, for your brain to make studying more enjoyable and get more out of it. You know, that's also another reason I forgot to mention why I'm such a fan of consistency. It's because I read it usually takes about two to three weeks for a habit to form. So if you can study Every day at the same time for two weeks. I know that's asking a lot, especially in this you know busy day and age. But if you can make it work for two weeks and be consistent for two weeks, it is going to be a habit that you have formed. And it is going to be that much easier to keep that promise to yourself for the weeks and months to come. Yeah. And then when you pass the exam... The next week, you're gonna, your body's gonna be saying, "Hey, uh, don't we need to study? Yeah. Are we supposed to be studying right now, Jerry?" <laughs> right, exactly. Maybe you'll find yourself. Eh, maybe I should get, you know, my uh, astrophysics uh, degree next. <laughs> You really do have that feeling of, well, what should I do next? I'm on a roll. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, now, what about kind of studying in general? What are what what do you find are the best actual uses of people's study time? Like what works and what doesn't work? The easier answer is what what doesn't work. And and over all these years and the thousands of students that 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 we've worked with, um, I find the most potentially lethal a habit is to just do practice questions and, and, but it's so, we're so inclined to want to do that, Jerry. Right. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, just doing practice questions alone is just not going to work. Uh, and I can understand why students, uh, do it because, So many of them are coming off of the Series 7 or 63 and 65, and in every single one of those tests, the way to pass those is to just jam practice questions over and over and over again, Uh, just because the way those tests are set up is it's, it's pure academic recall. So if you can just practice enough uh, questions you sit down for the series seven and you're going to see those pretty much those same questions with a few minor tweaks all over again on the test and you'll be good to go but the cfp exam isn't like that is it mike it's not it's not at all it's it's purely application driven and for a lot of us it's the first application driven exam we've ever taken um, certainly through college was, was academic recall, uh, for the most part, like you say, the securities exams, insurance exams, this one, we have to know a lot of stuff. We, we have to have excellent academic recall, but the answer to the question will be how to apply that in a financial planning scenario. That's a real challenge for most, most people. True. So unfortunately, it's not as easy as just jamming a bunch of practice questions. You got to put the work in to actually understanding the content and being able to apply the content to real world scenarios. 
Absolutely. And, and we need all of those nuggets of information in, in, in our brain. And that's, they're going to come to us from using all of the resources. Yes, study questions are good, but so is reading. And, and most folks don't want to do a bunch of reading, but we really have to for, for this exam to pick up every little detail and nuance we can to be able to sort out the scenario we see on the exam. True, true. Uh, you know, I know you're not a big fan of just only doing practice questions. You know what my uh, pet peeve is with uh, students and their study habits? <laughs> Remind me. <laughs> highlighters, Mike. Highlighters. These things are the bane of my existence because I see students basically just waste their money because either A, I'll, I'll have students and they'll take their textbooks and they'll basically just paint their book yellow. You know, they will go through and they will highlight the entire book. And I'm just like, what's the point? I mean, you, you every, yes, everything is important. That's why there it's in the textbook. It's important content and you need to know it. That doesn't mean you need to highlight it. And by highlighting entire paragraphs or pages or chapters, even you're not doing yourself any favor. All you're doing is taking the time to paint your book. Um, yeah, and it's that bright, bright yellow. The next time you open the book to a <laughs> bright yellow page, you burn your eyeballs. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then my other students who do have some self control and restraint, and they are able to, you know, only highlight the most important stuff. The problem that I see them run into is you still have to go back and find that information. You know, you're doing a question, and you're like, oh shoot, I sort of remember this, but I want to double check it, and you're still flipping through pages and. You know, yeah, you have it highlighted. So when you get to the right page, it'll jump out to you. But you still need to get to that right page in the first place. And it's just it's just not really an efficient use of your time. Yeah, I um, I mean, I must confess, I, I, I did a little uh, highlighting uh, in everything I've studied, but I've never been a, a page painter. I like that term page painter. Um, but I absolutely made some. But I think what was more powerful for me was doing flashcards, handwritten flashcards yes. on those bullet points. Definitely. I love flashcards. I think flashcards are hugely important. And more importantly, I love handwritten flashcards. Uh, because um, another kind of brain trick for our listeners, uh, the act of writing something down increases your ability to memorize it. Uh, it just activates that same information in a different part of your brain, and you're just storing that information in another little spot uh, so that it just kind of becomes uh, easier and easier to, to recall that when it's important. Uh, you know, just the act of you know, writing it down and putting it into muscle memory uh, will be great. I mean, that's why I'll tell students for those super important things like the formulas and, you know, other uh, concepts that just absolutely no matter what have to be memorized. I'll tell my students to sit down and take a sheet of paper and write that topic out 10, 15, 20 times, you know, kind of like Bart Simpson at the uh, at the chalkboard. <laughs> uh, uh, I laugh, but I actually did that. Um when I studied years ago, uh, and it was about boot uh, in a in a like kind exchange, and I wrote over and over that boot received is taxable to the extent of gain in the transaction. I wrote that sentence. I bet I wrote it 200 times, Jerry. <laughs> right. And you could still to this day recall it and <laughs> verbatim spit it out. <laughs> yeah. And I have thousands of times over the years to 
to students, but I, and, and then I was really thankful that I did get that question on the exam. Right. So I was like, I knew I got one, right? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So yeah, it is a bit time consuming, but if there is something that you just absolutely, no matter what, have to memorize, write it out over and over again. Uh, you know, it's silly, but teachers did it back in the day for a reason. And that's because it actually works. Yeah, and I, I played a game of trying to get the memory triggered on fewer and fewer words. Uh, on the I took five by seven flashcards, put a hole in the corner and put a steel ring around it and um, had that for uh, each core topic, each of the six courses. And uh, I would just try to get that down to three words, four, four words, ten words. Um, without taking a whole card to write one bullet point. Right. And that's also what I like about flashcards compared to highlighting is, you know, highlighting's easy. You know, you can go through and highlight an entire page of a book in probably a minute. You know, it's not that difficult. But when you take a flashcard and you're copying out what you want to memorize, that forces you to only focus on the most important things because let's be honest, Mike, humans are kind of lazy and they don't want to do more work than they really have to. And so if you are handwriting out note cards, you're going to focus on just the absolute most important stuff because you don't want to be sitting there rewriting the entire book in your own handwriting. Absolutely. Um, I carried those six stacks of um, flashcards with me all the time in a backpack. And so if I had 15 minutes or an hour, I was commuting on the train one hour each way to, to work every day, I would pull out a stack of cards and start flipping through them. And, and you find that you can read the first couple of words and remember most of the other points that you've written down. Right. Exactly. Uh, and yeah, it's just, it's, it, it serves two purposes. One, it helps you memorize those topics. And two, once you finish, like you said, you have a great study resource that you can use pretty much anywhere. Yeah, or sell yeah. <laughs> to somebody in your office. <laughs> that too, yeah. Get the uh, the intern who's getting the CFP after you. <laughs> yeah, but then, then they would need to write their own at some point. Yes. But I've actually, uh, I don't have them anymore, but uh, I've had a lot of offers over the years that someone could buy them. And I always <laughs> just told them, no, you're probably better off writing your own. All right, Mike, another question that gets asked all the time by students and one of the hardest ones to actually answer is, you know, what score should I be achieving on my practice quizzes and exams to assure, guarantee, make sure no matter what I pass the CFP exam? What's the answer, Mike? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, if I had that answer, I would have long ago won the lottery or or (laughs) some other type of riches, but um, there is no, there is no absolute answer to that. And, and again, we resist that because that's not how it was with securities exams and insurance exams, but there's no absolute number. Right. So you're saying that if I, you know, consistently get nineties on all my quizzes and practice exams, I'm not going to go in there, you know, whistling as I walk into the ProMetric site, you know, confident that I'm going to beat this exam no matter what. Well, that might be fun to see the reaction of your fellow test takers that, that day. <laughs> but, um, you know, I like your chances in the 90s. But, you know, I have to say over the years, I've had some students that were scoring in that range and 
and then choked on the exam. They and that's usually just a nerves thing, but um, that certainly is a good sign. But it's no absolute guarantee. True, true. Uh, And I feel one reason uh, that can be the case compared to some of the other FINRA exams is sort of the subjective nature of the CFP exam. Um, You know, it's a CFP is is very, uh, you know, perspective orientated, I feel, compared to kind of just the straight fact based tests of uh, FINRA. I I would agree with that. And um, and this is a great point you're making, Jerry, because one of the one of the sets of material that students don't like to read are is the code of ethics and standard uh, standards, professional standards. Um, You can get an insight into the CFP board's perspective when you look at those materials and study practice standards and how they describe the uh, steps in the financial planning process. Yeah, for sure. And it's it's an important uh, aspect of the exam. It makes up a good chunk of the exam itself. I believe it's between seven and 12 percent on just the uh, the practice standards. Uh, And it's a very important subject that a lot of students tend to skim over because I don't know if they just don't think it's as important or they just feel like, oh, it's common knowledge. I don't need to study it. But I mean, these questions tend to be kind of freebies if as long as you know it. But in order to know it, you need to read these practice standards and get a good grip on them. I've over the years since this became a big deal, I have told students that if I were preparing for the CFP exam today, I would read the standards uh, at least once a week. And everybody thinks I'm kidding about that, but I'm not. I've had students come back to me afterward who passed and said, I'm so glad you said that. I took it seriously. And you were right, it threads its way through that exam many, many ways. But that's, you know, that's just another piece you can't avoid by doing something you'd rather do with your time, like just doing practice questions. One of the trade-offs is time to study these standards. But as far as the score, let's talk about scores for a minute, Jerry. Yeah. Um, I think what's most important with a score, so let's say you're scoring in the 50s, 60s, and whether it's 50s and 60s or 80s, the real thing is to go back and review all of the questions you answer, particularly the ones you incorrectly answer, and try to pinpoint why. Why did I miss that? Where did I go wrong on this one? True. And this kind of harkens back to the question we asked at the beginning of the episode. You know, I'll tell my students all the time that the CFP exam is just as much a reading comprehensive exam as it is a financial exam. Uh, There are going to be a lot of questions that you may know the answer but you could still get wrong if you misread the question or even worse, you read, you read the question and your brain tells you that it's a different question entirely. You know, so many, I'll tell my students read the question out loud. I know it feels silly and you know, you might not want to do it, but it will help you because when you read a question out loud, you force your brain to actually read the question that is actually there in front of you. Not the question that your brain wants to read. That's a good point. Um, I, I also recommend um, reading the last sentence of the question stem first, just to see if it can isolate uh, that the topic that's being tested in that question and isolate, insulate rather, 
um, from the noise that's going on in the question, the distracting information. Oh, that is a good point because the CFP board does love to just throw extraneous information that has nothing to do with the question in the question itself. You know, <laughs> I've seen I've seen questions where, you know, client uh, has $10,000 in bonds that are paying a 6% coupon and inflation is at 3% and their kid is going to college in 18 years, but college inflation is 20%. And what's the most that they can contribute to their IRA this year? <laughs> it's like, oh, well, okay. None of that other information mattered because the IRA contribution is just a flat amount has nothing to do with inflation or college or any of that stuff. But you know, it's all a bunch of red herrings that the CFP board will throw at you to try and throw you off your game. Yeah. Well, and even a short question like like we went through earlier on the Roth, uh, if that weren't read carefully, you could easily have gone with one of the incorrect choices. True, true. So, you know, read the full question. RTFQ. Isn't that right, Mike? RTFQ. Read the uh, I think that's what it's yeah. what F means. Uh, sure. Let's go with that full. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, read the full question. And, you know, if it is a particularly tricky question, read it out loud. I mean, there's a reason why copy editors will read out loud. Uh, you know, don't let your brain play tricks on you. The CFP board is going to pull enough of those on its own. You don't want to sabotage yourself on top of that. It, that's right. And, and in this discussion, you know, I don't mean to say that what you score in your practice exams is not important. It is. But the the most important piece is why did I miss it? What did I read too quickly? Did I not read the full question? Am I going Am I making assumptions just in the first sentence? I'm nervous and, and, and I'm making assumptions about what it's asking about. And we want to find the pattern to the errors. And that's why you want to review every single practice question you, you, you ever uh, do is to connect those dots and determine why the correct answer shown was the best choice among those that were offered. True, true. And that's really what it comes down to. A lot of times there will be multiple answers that are technically correct, but aren't really the best answer. That's right. That, that's, a, that's an awesome point, Jerry, because there will be things there that make sense, especially on the questions you get that source back to the standards of conduct. They have a lot of questions in that regard that say, what does the planner do next? And and we may see three of the four answer choices as things that are technically correct and they make sense. But then you back up and read the full question. It's the very next thing they're looking for. And that's that's why we have to be so careful with it. And that's why we want to read the standards, because those questions become immensely easier if you're familiar with how they look at the steps in the financial planning process. True. Uh, let's take a, a step back to the scoring again, because uh, that is kind of a related topic that I have a lot of students ask me all the time. And it's, you know, how is the CFP board exam scored? You know, is it one out of 100? Is it A, B, C, D? What's going on there? Well, they use um, a, a system called modified Angoff method. And we absolutely should not be concerned about that. It's me in the exam when I get in there. And it's not graded on a curve. 
There is a uh, there is a set score that's determined before the exam based on the questions that are being used in that cycle. And it's just me racking up enough points. And that doesn't impact how I need to study for the exam. I'm not studying for 100%, but I don't have a magic number that says, well, I have to at least get 80%. Just do the best on the material and then go take your best shot at the exam. Yeah, for sure. I I mean, that's hard to do. People want to have that goal to shoot for, but it ends up doing more harm than good. Yeah, and it, not that there's something we can see in scores. I mean, if I have a student that's consistently getting 50% on practice exams, we need to get to the root of that. Right. And that that usually turns me in the direction of more academic work. I need to dig deeper in the material. I need to do more reading if it's at 80% and they're frustrated by the 20% they're missing, it could just be more practice at that point. The academics are good, but they just need some more practice in taking apart question stems. Mm-hmm. True. And also back to the, the subjective questions that we talked about earlier, you know, making sure that they're, uh, you know, identifying what's actually being asked and how to answer it and what the correct answer is not just the technical correct answer. Yeah. And and I will say I've had a lot of students over the years that didn't really ever get above 60, 65% on their practice questions because a lot of practice questions are really, really hard, but they went in and nailed the exam because they had done all the other work in addition to doing those practice quizzes. So don't ever think you're out of it, but certainly if you're consistently low, you've got to let us help you. Come to us. Talk to us. Definitely. Definitely. Well, I think that's a good spot to start wrapping up, Mike. Any closing thoughts you wanted to leave with our audience uh, before we get out of here? Well, first, just thanks for your time in in, in giving this a listen. I hope uh, you enjoyed the format. And as I said, give us feedback on topics you'd like to see us take apart uh, and talk about together. But I, I just want to tell you, we appreciate being your partner so much in this journey. We believe in you. We have a lot of dedicated resources to help you. And we look forward to to a, a long relationship as you move through this journey. Great. Well, I hope you all enjoyed uh, this episode of Biff Bites. Uh, good luck with all of your study practice. And I'm sure you're all going to do great. Mm-hmm.